Well, hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, if I've not met you before, my name is John. I get to serve as a pastor here. And I'm so thankful that we get to be a part of stories like hers. And it's, again, like Blake said, because of what you give, because of how you serve and, and lay your own resources down that God has given you to give back, that's why we get to do it. And uh, I remember when Lindsay and I found out we were pregnant, I should say she was pregnant, I was supporting the pregnant person. Um, when she was pregnant, the overwhelming fear of having like a living human being under responsibility washed over me, but also the overwhelming joy that we had people around us that had done it before, right? Like some of you, like we just ask questions like, how do we do this? I have no idea. And one of the things that was like a common thread with Every single person we asked, uh, number one, you're asking about, yeah, that's just Lennon with avocado on her face. I just threw that in there for the awe points. You know what I mean? So that's just there. Uh, that's Lennon. She's almost 10 months old. And so when we had her, it was like, okay, I know right now I'm getting zero hours sleep. Like I'm counting sleep in minutes, not hours. Have you been there? <laughs> like that's not a good place to be. And so I said, like, we need to figure out, like, how do you get Lennon to sleep? Like, how do we get her to sleep through the night? And a common resounding theme among a lot of people, our church included, was you got to have some kind of nighttime routine, right? Do you remember this as parents? Maybe you remember like the, the weird things and order of things you used to do. And so it, whether it was like how you did the bottles or what clothes she was wearing or what books you read or how you fed her before or who did it, it was like down to the T, we had locked it in. And some of you know my wife. Lindsay, she is one of the most structured human beings on the planet, which is a huge gift to me. Uh, and so we kind of structured out how is this going to look every single night to try to cue Lennon to be ready to go to sleep and hopefully sleep through the night. That was the goal. And so we figured out the bottle thing and it was okay. We figured out like, uh, let's do this certain kind of lotion at this certain time or, or try to figure out the wake windows before. We did all those things, but we found there was kind of a secret ingredient to making sure Lennon would want to go to sleep. So for the first like 15, 20 minutes of her bedtime routine, re bedtime routine we called it naked time. Okay, so like there would be a period of time where the three of us for 15 to 20, I'm just kidding, all of you like didn't, None of you laughed, and that makes you weird because you all just thought that was normal, and that's not normal. You should not do that. Um, so anyway, all, I'm still trying to get over that. That hit me for the second time. Um, but anyway, so we just set her aside, say, okay, Lennon, it's naked time, and she gets all excited and take her clothes off, and she just goes all over the house and spits on things and pees on things. It's like her favorite time of the day. She's hooked on it, like loves it when it can happen. But it's work. Like for the most part, she's begun to cue that. It's like, okay, I'm like getting ready for bed. I'm all excited. Like I get my last bottle. What makes that interesting, I was kind of watching her a few nights ago, and obviously, if I did that as an adult, like we FaceTime our parents sometimes, like during naked time. And even as her grandparents are kind of like embarrassed for us, they're like, are your windows open? Like, should people be seeing this? Like, she's a little baby. She's totally naked. Like, people walking by would see it. Now, obviously, that's kind of weird. If I did it when I FaceTime my parents, you get the point, right? Way weirder. It'd be awkward. And so I had a kind of revelation. I'm sitting there in the moment. And I'm watching her kind of squirm all around naked and just loving bedtime routine. And I figured out, I was like, you know what she has that I don't have? She has no shame. This girl has no shame. She honestly could not care less if she was in front of the United Nations butt naked. She would have zero shame. Like she loves 
that time. So as you look at that, and obviously as you get older, that becomes much weirder, um, or show, so it should. But shame, interestingly enough, you, you, when we talk about that word and that idea, shame is a unique thing. It actually gets stronger as we get older. Shame has a way of growing. It has a way of expanding. It has a way of taking over more ground in our lives as we get older. If you look at the very beginning of the scripture story, how does this start? Genesis 2, 25, there's this one line that says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. They, they didn't feel their vulnerabilities. They didn't feel their fragility. They didn't feel their uh, upcoming sin or any of that. They just had no worries and they had zero shame. But as you go through life, all of us, as, as people who are born into this havoc-ridden, chaotic world, end up growing in shame. And shame is, is deadly, and it's not something to play with, because what shame ends up doing in our lives is keeping us from hope. Shame will keep you complacent in your walk with God and in your marriage. Shame will trap inside what God wants to bring outside. Like shame has a way of derailing God's best intentions for all of us as a good, loving, heavenly father. It just, it does, especially as it goes unaddressed in our lives. As you look at the scripture story, that's how it starts. We're created in relationship. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's decisions, and then we end up needing a redeemer. We've been talking about this the last couple Sundays, right? The, the need we all have for redemption in our own stories, in our family stories, and in the world. And so I want to take you to a passage that is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Uh, Hebrews 12 is where we're going. We're going to start in just the first couple verses. If you have like a physical Bible or you want to look it up, I encourage you to do that. But Hebrews 12, this is how this passage starts. Here's what the writer says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're going to get back to that in a second, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Think about trying to run through a field and getting tripped up, right? This is a, the imagery here, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. A lot of you know I love running. I enjoy that. I love doing marathons. We're getting ready to do a half marathon in, in a few months. Like, I enjoy that process, but, but it's talking about the race marked out for you, for your life. Let us run with perseverance, Verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, so the beginning and the end of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Let that hit you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its, here's the word, shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you won't lose heart. That's where we're going to stop today. But in Hebrews 12, this letter is written to scattered Christians across the Roman Empire. And as we've talked about multiple times, right, the Roman Empire was not kind to people who declared Jesus as Lord because Caesar was supposed to be Lord. So it would be job threats. You'd lose your job. It'd be uh, financial stress. It may be you lose a loved one or you lose status in a society. I mean, all of kind of the range of the spectrum here would happen if you were known to be a Christian in the empire. So Hebrews is written to literally encourage Christians who are suffering for their faith. Think about what we just prayed for, right? Ukrainian Christians who right now don't have the security that maybe you and I are enjoying. 
But the very beginning, I had an old English prof in college. He used to say, you got to know what the therefore is there for. Anyone have like someone like that? It's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. And now I remember it because right at the beginning of, of Hebrews 12, it literally points out the word therefore. That's how the chapter starts. And the therefore, that great cloud of witnesses uh, the writer's addressing goes back to Hebrews 11. So you could literally, maybe it's on the same page, or you could flip over to that page. In Hebrews 11 is what biblical scholars kind of refer to, and maybe you've heard this, called the Hall of Faith. Not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. And it's literally walking through different biblical characters and their acts of faith and how God used them in the story of humanity, in the story of redemption. Now you could read through that and be like, man, I'm not Noah, I'm not Abraham, I'm not Rahab, I'm not all these brave people that are listed in Hebrews 11. But if you dig deeper into every single person's story, these are not necessarily heroes if you, if you read into it. So let's take Noah, for example. What, what is Noah famous for? Just some quick Sunday School 101, right? Like the ark, it's so cute. He lets a birdie go. And then we, humanity is saved. Like, how does that work? I don't know, but that's Noah. Like, that's his job. He, he's that guy. So after all this, his incredible redemption story, man, what, what faith. He did things when no one else wanted him to think that he should do that. Well, then after his story, years later, you find Noah drunk in an, an incestuous relationship with one of his kids. If I'm talking shame in a family story, that would fit, right? That would be Noah. Let's go to another one, Abraham. So Abraham, this incredible patriarch of the faith, even Jewish people to this day, Abraham is so high in their minds. It's such an important figure in, in the history of salvation, the history of what God has done. And yet Abraham has this streak over and over again in his story of lying and deceiving and not telling the truth and doubting God's promises and this is Abraham, and he's included in this hall of faith. Let's go to the next one, Rahab. One of the other names in, this, in chapter 11 is Rahab, and she's a glorified prostitute. She's found in a brothel in Jericho and ends up being a part of God's kind of redemption plan over that city as they overtake it. And it's, but it's like, if she's in my family tree, I'm not necessarily putting her as like the hall of faith. I'd be like, I'm kind of ashamed about Rahab. You guys know about cousin Rahab? I mean, God redeemed it, but look at what she did before. Like, there would be some shame to that story. What happens with each one of them is their shame is turned into glory. Their shame is turned into something great. And as you look through the story, all of these people, all these characters are pointing to a greater redeemer, someone who can rescue and bring resolution to the problems of our world and what we're facing. Enter prophecies like Isaiah 61. One of the most famous prophecies says literally, that when the Messiah comes, he will turn their shame, Isaiah 61, 7, their shame into a double portion or, or blessing or joy is the words behind that. He will turn what's dark and broken about them into something incredibly beautiful. Now, here's the, here's the issue. All of us would nod our heads and be like, nice sermon. Can we go home? Like, good job. That's great. Because we all sort of get the cross. We all kind of get like redemption. We kind of get what Jesus came to do. But here's the issue. A lot of us like to leave it either in the past or in the future and neglect what it could do in the present. The, the cross was an event, great event. I'm glad it happened. The cross is in the future, this kind of cosmic battle that was secured and now here I am. I'm just kind of in the middle of all this. But the cross did not just defeat sin for eternity. It defeated shame right now. It defeated shame today. It defeats shame in your personal 
life and in your family and in your marriage and in your spiritual journey. The cross didn't just defeat and kind of secure this eternal battle. It defeated shame for you and I in our real lives right now. Like the fact that it defeated shame is the reason the Hebrews writer puts joy and cross in the same sentence. Like, think about it. If you were facing a bloody, torturous crucifixion, would the word joy come to your mind? No. Maybe suffering, maybe pain, maybe anguish, maybe sorrow, not joy. But it says that it's for the joy set before Jesus that he endured. He persevered through the cross, scorning its shame. Scorn is probably not a word you've used in the last week. I haven't used it in years until I read this passage again. Like, it's not something I talk about, but scorning, the idea behind this is literally thinking little of, despising, or like thinking lowly about something. That's what it means to scorn something. This is how Jesus interprets this Roman crucifixion device in light of the joy of redemption. He, he considers it. How, how can someone call the cross a joy? Because crucifixion, honestly, I mean, cru- there's a ton of ways you could end a person's life quickly, right? We know this. Like as technology grows, it's even quicker. But in Roman times, they had a lot of those same options. Like there's a lot of ways you could end a person's life to kill somebody in a quick, timely manner. But crucifixion's point was not just to end someone's life. It was to bring shame and humiliation upon them. Like we said, Romans were exempt from having to be naked while on the cross, yet Jews were not. And so Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is stripped of all of his clothes, incredibly shameful, incredibly embarrassing. The cross would have been the ultimate form of shame in the known world. And yet Jesus and the writer of Hebrews talk about the cross, not as Jesus receiving shame, but as Jesus rejecting and overcoming the shame of the cross. It's a total reversal of how things would have gone. Now, in this passage, the Hebrew writer uses the metaphor of running a lot. And some of you love running like I do. Some of you enjoyed it. Some of you loathe it and hate it. And the last time you did it was in high school mile or whatever. But running was like a big deal in the Greco-Roman world, right? So we get our modern-day Olympics from the Greco-Roman world. We get kind of a lot, even Greco-Roman wrestling is still kind of a thing to this day. But what you may not know or may, may have forgotten is that most of the Greco-Roman sports would have been done totally naked. It was like adult naked time, okay, <laughs> with sports involved. So there's literally etchings of Greek runners at the time. And notice they're not wearing Nike track shorts or nice shoes. Like, it's just them. That's, it's just all there. It's all present. <laughs> that would be incredibly painful, I would think. But they did it. And for, for most of the time, it was like even the modern-day marathon is where this, this comes from. So running in Greece would have been a very different experience than, than running on the Kent Trail. I'll just put it that way. So these runners are going, and this is the imagery, saying take off literally anything that entangles you. Get totally free from all the things that would possibly trip you up. Now, here's the, here's the thing. I thought this kind of running was done, right? Like Greeks, Romans, they're all, the, the empires have perished away, and people run with clothes on, on now. Thank God I was wrong. Okay, I was wrong. So literally four years ago, I'm, I'm at this race, and uh, I, I see a, <laughs> someone just groaned already. I'm at this race and on the registration, it has an option to select the natural mile. Now I am a pure, innocent as a lamb human being. 
And so I did not know what the natural mile was. I was like, man, what? This is weird. I'm not signing up for a mile. I signed up to run a longer race. I'm going to do that race. No problem. And so the race goes by. It just kind of bugs me. I'm thinking about it. Fast forward a couple weeks later, my brother and I are running together with this guy in a totally separate state, in a totally separate race, but he has the shirt on from the race. I'm like, hey, did you run Woodstock? Which should have tipped me off, but like the race was called the Woodstock Marathons. I was like, did you run Woodstock? I was like, I was there. I said, there was something that bugged me. Like, what was the thing on the registration about the natural mile? And he literally like, we're running up a trail. He literally turns around and he's like, oh bro, you didn't run the natural mile? He's like the biggest hippie ever. Come to find out the guy lives in a nudist colony and thought the natural mile was like the greatest thing ever. He was like, oh, it's intentional community, bro. You're like all together. It's just no, no clothes, no shoes. I'm like, bro, is this real? Like, am I in Greece right now? What is happening? I th- I'm in West Virginia. Like, what, what is happening? This is crazy. And so I look at that and I actually have a picture from that race. I was going to show you. Can you get that on the screen? Okay, just kidding. You're like, naked time, running, this is getting weird. Uh, we are going somewhere, I promise. But that hit me because that's literally, I mean, as weird as it is, that's the imagery Hebrews wants you and I to live life with. That's, a, that's what they mark out. That's the race, right, with endurance and perseverance set out before you. You don't have to run somebody else's race, but your calling is to get free and to run your race. That's why in verse 3, it starts out with the, the word consider. Now, some of you love math. I hate math, but consider right here is a, a like arithmetic term. It's really, a, it has to do with calculations. It's literally maybe another way to read it is calculate your life on Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Like think about it. Truly consider the fact that you have been redeemed so that you can run free and you can run your race free from shame. Now, here's the thing. You may sit here and you're like, I don't have any shame. Why are you talking about this? This does not make any sense to me. I don't think about it. I don't even know where you're going. Like, here's the reality, though. Like, modern research psychology would tell us that shame is the root behind almost every single negative behavior you, behavior you have. Now, it could be violence. It could be addiction. It could be depression. Bullying could be abuse. Like, there is shame. If you got honest long enough, there's shame behind every single one of those moments. There's shame behind every single one of those behaviors. And here's the the tension you and I face. We, from an early age, like real, real young, learn how, how, like we take on the weight of shame, even if you don't know it. So women, let me talk to you for a second. Women in the room, often the message to you is you have to measure up to expectations. You must measure up. You must be as good as the mom next door. You must pack organic veggies for their kid's lunch. You must be a, as good a spouse or better than your parents were, or, or you must cook as well as you think, or you must be a, as good a salesperson or good an artist as you think you should be. There is this internal message that, that occurs, especially in women, even from an early age, that you must measure up to expectations. And if you don't, shame on you. Shame on you. And, and men are not off the hook. We just care less, right? So we're like, I don't care what your expectations of me are. Here I am. Like we're just, we're men. That's how it goes. But all of us carry shame as well. We carry the shame that says, do not be weak. Don't be weak. Don't be viewed as weak. Be strong. 
composed, always provide, don't get fired, don't fail, don't not make the deal. And we take these, these narratives on and they end up creating for us lives of shame. Like we live with these undercurrents of shame. So when you don't make the team, you get crushed by that shame because you're weak. When you don't have a kid <laughs> that spins out at 18 all the ways that you wanted her to, that, that at that point you realize, actually, I don't measure up. I, I don't live up to even my own expectations of myself. And there's a big difference too. Like we get confused between things like shame and guilt or shame and conviction. Like the way I understand it, especially from scripture, and I think what this passage kind of points out about the cross is that shame says you did something bad, therefore you are bad. Like your wiring's off, you're corrupt, you're distorted. But guilt says you did something bad, don't do it again. <laughs> guilt can actually have a positive force in our lives. It actually can push us to better behaviors and actually lead us into freedom if we let it. God uses guilt sometimes to trigger our mind and realize maybe what I did was not the best for me or my family or my spouse or my job or my integrity. Guilt can be a positive force, but they're very different. Shame says you did something bad, therefore you are bad. Guilt says you did something bad, don't let it happen again. Like I'm, I've given you this kind of course correction at work in your life. Like to be honest, I've been a, a pastor here almost five years. I've been in pastoral ministry longer than that. I have never had someone come to me like on a Sunday morning. And I, I know I've talked to people hungover, but I've never had someone come up to me Sunday morning hungover and be like, you know what, pastor, it was like, man, I don't remember where I was last night. I don't remember how much money I spent. I don't remember how much things I drank. I don't remember what I said to my spouse or my kids when I got home. I don't even know how I'm here, but man, I'm glad I'm hungover, right? <laughs> I've never had anyone say that. Why? Because when you are hungover, there's this feeling, even if you can't name it, of guilt. I did something I know is actually not in my best interest for my body and for my relationships and my decision-making. The list goes on. You could, do, you could say the same thing about pornography. You close the laptop. No one's like, man, I feel really good that I just did that. It's a feeling of dark shame. And it can be a feeling of guilt that actually could lead us to say, maybe this is not the best path for me. Maybe God has better for me. The weird part is all of us have a tendency, and this is me included, to go to things like a church service and still have that undercurrent of shame at work in our lives. It may be harder to name, but you know it's there. It may be harder to identify, but you know that in the, in the narratives of your mind, it's happening, it's going, it's playing over and over and over. But friends, here's the reality. Here's what's powerful about what we just read. That going to church, living with this undercurrent of shame is like going to a gym and staying in the lobby. Going to church and living with this constant weight you were not designed to carry and God is not trying to put on you is like going to a gym and saying, I'm really content to just sit in the lobby. Oh, they have bagels and pizza this one. I'm gonna eat some of that. Like just, just sitting there. Like sure, you're in the gym. Sure, you're in the church. But are you getting stronger? Are you getting healthier? Are you getting more in line with the image of God? He's imprinted on every single one of you. Like, are you doing that? And if the answer is no, there may be shame underneath this. And I think the most powerful part about this entire scripture is that line right in the middle of verse two. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was Jesus' joy on the cross? What, what gave him the eternal happiness, the gladness, outside of circumstance, to endure the pain of crucifixion? I mean, honestly, you look at the rest of scriptures, the blatant, obvious answer is you. It's your redemption. It's your wholeness. It's your opportunity to live free of shame, to live free of bondage, to live outside of the grip of fear and sin. That was Jesus's joy on the cross, not to make you stronger as a guy and not to make you measure up as a woman. That was never the intention. It was our redemption, which in that beautiful, mysterious cross moment brought the father glory as well. That brought God himself, his father, glory. I was sitting with a pastor a couple years ago and I meet with a lot of pastors. Obviously, it's kind of my, my wheelhouse. So I was hanging out with him and we'd hung out a few other times and he just asked like, Hey, before you go, like we're, we're in my office, there's not a lot of distractions. You mind if I pray for you? I was like, yes, I'm never going to say no to an opportunity for prayer. Of course, like go for it. So we start praying and he kind of pauses midway and he's like, hey, John, I just want to pause here for a moment. Like I'll finish in a second, but is God saying anything to you? Which to me is like the most loaded question ever. I was like, I don't know. I'm hungry. Maybe that's it. I I'm not sure what you're doing here. I thought prayer was like, you said it and then amen, and then you move on. Like, what's going on? He just said, is God saying anything to you? He said, just take a minute, think about it. And so I did. I was kind of sitting there, I was silent in the room. And I was like, I don't really think God's saying anything to me, but I, I'm getting like names and conversations and decisions I've made from like 10 years ago. I said, is there anything to that? <laughs> I, kinda, I don't know, is that what you're looking for? And, and the common thread between all of them, one was a past relationship that I did things I regret and wish I had not done. One was a teacher in high school who said incredibly critical, hurtful things to me. And others were kind of scattered along, but they all had the common thread, these relationships that I went to for love and acceptance and belonging that ended up hurting me and hurting the people in them. And, and I just kind of blurted out as I started to cry, it's shame. It's shame. That's what I have. I didn't even know. It's like this undercurrent just going through my heart. And it was shame. And so we prayed into that. We brought it to the cross. We brought it to Jesus. It's not totally fixed, not totally resolved. But three years ago, I would have not shared that with you because it wasn't at a place where I could share. It was way too raw and God had just started to tap into it. But now, years later, I have much more freedom and much more release from that shame than I had when we first prayed. So here's the power of Hebrews 12. If you believe this, if you don't, that's great. I'm glad you're here. Keep asking questions. If you believe what we just read, Jesus scorned or despised the shame of the cross. So you do not have to carry shame anymore. Like an unhindered runner, right? Set out before you. You've trained, you've got the race in front of you, you know, the finish line and you can just run. See, shame says, you are the worst you have done. You are the worst event. You are the worst relationship. You are the worst word. You are the worst substance. You're the worst alcohol that you have done. And the cross, literally this instrument of torture in the Roman world, actually with Jesus on it says, bring me your worst and I will give you my best. Bring me your worst stuff. 
Bring me the stuff you're embarrassed about. Bring me the shame. Bring me the names or conversations or decisions or the breaches of integrity or the cheating or the lying. Bring that to me and I will give you my best. I will give you myself. I will give you myself forgiving, loving, serving, laying down my life for you on the cross for your redemption. This is the cross. This is how for 2000 plus years, People like you gather up and we sing songs about a Roman torture device because God flipped it on its head what it was supposed to be, where it was supposed to be a place of great shame. He says, I will give you my best. I will turn this around into a victory. So you may be asking, okay, what, what am I supposed to do with all this? Like, what are you talking about? Do we each need to have this kind of prayer session? What am I supposed to do? And for me, one of the most powerful things about that time was that I had to speak it out. I had to confess it. I had to get it out of inside of me. I had, to, I had to say it, which started to bring those greater levels of freedom and healing. And Brene Brown is kind of a vulnerability researcher, her former, former title, but she, she really looks into these areas that we've talked about. A lot of the stuff I'm drawn from has just been helpful from her. And she says this, shame cannot survive being spoken. Let me say that one more time. Shame cannot survive being being spoken. We've said this before, sin grows in the dark. Shame grows in the dark. But when you're able to speak things out, it actually has a way of getting you in touch with the freedom that the cross can offer. Shame cannot survive being spoken. And so in light of all of this, in light of what the Hebrews writer says, in light of the view of the cross and what it means to be redeemed, I want to give you two questions and then a way to take a step. Because for a lot of us, one of the worst things we could do is nod our heads and say, good sermon, and go to lunch and move on and let that undercurrent keep flowing until it takes us out. And God has more for us. So the first question is very simple. What shame do I feel? What shame is there? Like it may take a minute to help, kind of clarify and identify, but what's there? What's underneath? What, what thing do you not want to speak out? What thing feels like it's just got you by the legs. What thing is entangling your life? That, my friends, is the thing that may be shame. It may be shame. What shame do I feel? The second question is really, really simple. And it's, uh, it's up to you. Will I choose freedom? Will I choose freedom? Will I walk out of this room, not, not everything fixed, not everything resolved, but will I choose freedom? I say, yes, I'm choosing a better way. Yes, I am stepping away from the life of shame and the life of bondage into a life of freedom. I'm gonna bring my worst and let Jesus give me his best. And as we do that, as we identify what those are, I'm gonna encourage you, especially in, in a room like this where we've got some, some space to move. There's a cross at the back of the room and God moved powerfully in this as we did this an hour or so ago in our first service. But I'm gonna encourage you to do the same thing in boldness. I'm gonna ask you to get out of your seat at some point in the next 10 minutes as we're singing and to write down whatever that is. Write down that area of shame, that place, that decision, that hurt, and to stick it up on the cross. Not as a way of like, poof, magically it's gone, but as a way of saying, Jesus, today I'm choosing your freedom. I'm choosing your way. And so for me, today it's just continuing to break that grip. I'm gonna write down past relationships. Because 10 years is too long to hold on to stuff. It's too long. 10 days, too long. We do not have to carry that shame. And we were not designed 
That's the beauty of the redemptive work of the cross. And so as we sing, as we pray, I just want to encourage you, consider, calculate, what is it that God wants to bring you freedom for today? So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you, you really are. You are everything that you say you are. You are radically consistent and compassionate. You are kind. And that it's actually in view of the cross that we see not only did you defeat sin, you overcame death for us, but you actually set us free in the present. You wanna bring us into freedom right now. And so God, we ask for your courage and boldness. We ask for your, your motivation, your drive. Some of us have been so long since we really addressed some of these darker things in our life. And we need you to just stir us up, to break up the soil of our own heart. So would you do that? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your gentle touch that just knows how to, how to guide and lead us into truth. We pray that you would do that right now. We love you and surrender all things to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing together. Feel free to move. Feel free to, to kind of go to the cross at any point over these next couple songs. But let's not miss the moment to let God do that in us. Let's sing.